ACR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. This is Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, it's June the 1st. Uh, we've just entered winter. <laughs> um, you're joined here by me, Genevieve. I've got Evie, Fong and Carnegie. How is everyone this morning? Cold. Cold. <laughs> Crisp and cold. Yeah, not too bad. Yeah, it's, um, it's going to be a bit of a cold one, I think, this week. But it's been like, don't you think this is such a lockdown, like, weather vibe of, like, clear skies, but, like, cold as yeah like I just remember last year being inside and being like it's so sunny and nice but it's like freezing yeah definitely <laughs> just like the being stuck inside all winter and looking outside and being like oh I want to go out again yeah it's it's um it's a lot all right should we discuss what's um coming up on the show this week um, well, uh, this morning I'll be speaking with uh, Sally Goldner, who um, I'm sure our listeners are very familiar with. Um, Sally is the host of uh, Out of the Pan, which is on 3CR every Sunday, and uh, she's going to talk us through the uh, uh, Victoria's Transgender History Report that came out uh, May this year. Um, and then we have some audio from another one of Theresia's amazing shows called In Your Face, where um, Luke Forrester, who's a local queer pop culture artist, talks about racism in Australia, including on Drag Race. And we're also going to have audio from Jacob and Zane from um, from GLR on Fridays, um, speaking with Ange Carr from Homeless Action Geelong. Uh, Homeless Action Geelong is campaigning to halt the privatisation of public housing in Victoria and to immediately build 50,000 new public housing dwellings of appropriate size. So that'll be a really great conversation. Yeah, for sure. So a really big show this week. Um, I just wanted to ask before we go to a quick announcement, does anyone have any, like, lockdown plans or, like, lockdown a lockdown vibe? I've got a lockdown vibe. (laughs) (laughs) Which is similar. So the last lockdown... My partner and I, and we lived with a housemate at the time, we, every Saturday, we cooked up a three-course meal to mm. serve to the other two, and it was themed. Um, and now it's just me and my partner, and we're going to do something similar. That's so just, cute. the theme is food. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's so nice. My, my lockdown vibe is very different. I don't know if it's because now that I've got a puppy, I feel more active, but... Um, I really want to learn a dance. <laughs> I really want to learn. Yeah, it's actually the dance from one of the songs that we're going to play later today. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I won't give it away, but that's yeah, that's my plan. I don't know how like far a I'll get. Talk vibe. <laughs> uh, or like a, a proper dance. A, I mean, yeah, it's a proper dance. I can't dance, but hopefully I can. You know, just mm. try for at least you a couple can do of it seconds. Thank I you. believe. Thank you. <laughs> 
my lockdown vibe is pretty much just internet shopping. Yes. It's never changed. Yeah. It, it will continue. Yeah. <laughs> it's coming up to tax time too, so I'm just trying to find some excuses to buy things. Oh, yeah, that's nice. No, you deserve, <laughs> you deserve all the nice things. Yeah. yeah, my, um, I've actually, just where I live behind, they've um, put up a temporary skate park. Oh, that's cool. And I have a skateboard, and I know kind of how to use it, but I feel like this is, like, the push for me to be, like, okay, yes. just... Mm. The universe smiled on you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like the universe is telling me that I'm going to become the next Tony Hawk. <laughs> <laughs> no. um, all right. Well, we'll be right back after this. Hi, this is Isaac, and I'm talking to you from a tree seat 40 meters high in the Arenandro Plateau. I'm here with other activists because we want to stop what Big Forest is planning to do, which is to destroy 60 new areas in one of the last refuges of unburned forests in East Gippsland. We're calling the state government to protect all unburned areas of East Gippsland. If you want to get involved, contact gecko at gecko.org.au and join the campaign. A 3CR supporter. An important message from the Victorian Government. There are only five reasons to leave home. Shopping for food and supplies that you need, and exercise, both within five kilometres of your home, or as close to home as possible. Care and caregiving. Authorised work or education if you can't do it from home. Getting vaccinated as soon as you're eligible. Masks are now mandatory indoors and outdoors. And if you have any symptoms, get tested. A 3CR supporter. On that note, um, we're going to start with the news headlines and start uh, with the COVID lockdown that's happening in Victoria. Um, it was last uh, Thursday, the, co- uh, the sorry, Victorian state government issued a week-long lockdown for uh, people in Victoria. Um, there is now 50 active cases, um, which uh, jumped up from acquiring 11 uh, yesterday, um, as stated in that uh, announcement, you can only leave your house for five reasons. Uh, that is for um, essential uh, essential things, uh, exercise, um, uh, if you need to give care or receive care, um, and Oh, God. <laughs> to get vaccinated, I think, <laughs> is one of yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is a good reason. <laughs> a great reason. Yeah, and to get vaccinated, which everyone should be doing, the vaccination uh, limit has now uh, gone to 40, uh, 40 and over. So if you're 40 years of age or over, you can now get vaccinated. I know there's like a lot of, in the last week or two, especially preceding lockdown, there's been a lot of talk about how um, people under 30 can get vaccinations as well. Um, one thing one of my friends found is that if you put your name on a waiting list, they sometimes can contact you at your local GP if mm. there's like a um, vaccination um, centre there um, and they can call you at the end of the day. Um, if they haven't reached their targets, because I think some of the vaccinations are they're day dependent. So if they yeah. do have some left over, they will, um, you know, be able to give it to people. But I just really want my vaccine as soon as possible. Yeah. <laughs> they were saying that it's actually um, increased by six times the amount that was happening like a week ago. The people getting vaccinated, like yeah. 
I think people want to do it yeah. for the most part. Like, you know, there's going to be some holdouts, but, yeah. you know, if people want to do it, go get your vaccine. Yeah, definitely. Um, one thing about this lockdown as well um, that is quite alarming is that it has reached... Um, sorry, the um, infections have reached aged care. Um, and the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Foundation says that federal rules stopping aged care staff from working across multiple Commonwealth aged homes um, was like those limitations removed last year and only reinstated last Friday. So basically what that was was like federal support for people so that they could only work at one aged care or health facility. Um, and that support was taken away and only reinstated mm. last Friday. So um, as we saw from, like, the big lockdown last year, um, a pandemic thrives in a situation where, you know, there is insecure work or where people are forced to work in, you know, multiple locations. Um, and a lot of people don't really have that choice. So it's really shocking that, you know, they still haven't been given that support. And, in fact, like, it's now very timely as well. Yeah, definitely. And it's exhausting that we have to kind of have these conversations again because obviously the aged care thing was dominating much of the COVID outbreak last year. And I mean, we should be kind of getting onto this now. Mm. So, yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about um, the horrific discovery that, uh, yeah, that was made um, on Turtle Island or so-called Canada um, uh, just a few days ago. Um, so the remains of, uh, and uh, content warning because this is quite upsetting, um, uh, the remains of 215 Indigenous children were found at a former uh, residential school, uh, the Kamloops uh, Residential School, um, in the province of British Columbia this week. Um, uh, so a statement from the Tukumlups Disequipmach uh, chief, Roseanne Casimir, confirmed um, the discovery after using um, like ground-penetrating radar um, specialists. Um, and, yeah, I think they're, they're, um, these children were, were, um, had been missing for a while and they'd been deemed, you know, missing children, which is um, not – it's not – new or um yeah it's it's part of a a larger um history um in in canada uh that i don't know if many people know about um but similar to um you know to what has happened or and is continuing to happen um here in in so-called australia um you know there were residential schools that were set up by the canadian government run by churches um their objective, they said, was to educate children, but as we all know, mm. um, that's never the case. Um, and uh, yeah, so a, a lot of children who were sent to these residential schools never returned home. Um, they were they either ran away or um, or died there or. Um, yeah, some parents just never received any information or found out what happened to them. Um, so I think, yeah, watch this space because I think more reports will come out of out of this. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting to note that um, I found this interesting re- researching about this, that uh, 
there was a recent um, re- uh, report made that the government, the Canadian government, spent 3.2 million dollars fighting a group of Ontario. Um, residential school survivors in court. So these are survivors that had suffered abuse from attending um, a residential school. Um, and, yeah, the, the survivors wanted these documents that um, uh, they couldn't obtain. Um, and when uh, a, Supreme, a Supreme Court, the Supreme Court ruled that the federal government had to hand them over, um, over 12,000 documents were returned, but they were heavily redacted, so they weren't even able to see what was in the report. Um, Sounds depressingly familiar. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Um, So I think there's a lot, obviously, you know, being two settler colonies, there are a lot of similarities between what's happening in in Canada and what's happening in Australia. So, yeah, um, just thought I'd mention that, and maybe we can talk about it a bit more as more information comes out. But yeah, Celeste Little actually made a really um, lovely statement and very true. Um, she was saying that, um, I know I'm late recognising this, but it strikes me that the discovery of the children at Kamloops Residential School has happened during Australia's so-called Reconciliation Week and mere days after the anniversary of the Bringing Them Home report into our stolen generations. Um, and she just, like, you know, remarked on the fact that institutionalised violence against um, Indigenous people touches every single country Mm. and every single colony and is so similar between all the countries. Um, She was, like, reflecting on her own personal history um, where, you know, her grandmother and her relatives were taken. Um, Her father at 71 was born under the Northern Territory wardship system as well. So... There was no, like, you know, all these generations being affected by this sort of institutionalised violence. It just, like, it's awful that there is that sort of empathy across the borders. Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting to note, like, a lot of the articles, not all of them, but some of them, talk about this being... um, you know, part of Canadian history as if it had happened in the past and is no longer happening nowadays. But Mm -hmm. um, as you were just saying, Evie, like it affects everyone, um, you know, generations of of First Nations people, not just, you know, those who directly suffered um, uh, all those years ago. It's still happening now in different forms of, yeah, of violence, like in the... um, uh, in terms of like incarceration and um, and land rights and and other things, so yeah, mm. yeah, and it's very similar to here in the sense that you, I think a lot of people view Canada and Australia as like these idyllic countries mm. to live in, and a lot of people don't actually think about the histories, which are exactly like you said, Fung, not even history. It's mm. all currently happening like here. You know, Rottnest Island, for example, one of many examples, um, you know, people camp their families and stuff, and recently it was discovered that they were camping on the graves of at least 370 Aboriginal men. So, yeah, it's, like, super close to home. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, in related news, the inquest um, into Aboriginal men, Wayne Fellow Morrison's um, death in custody uh, is ongoing. So um, talking about the institutional abuse that suffered by Indigenous peoples, it continues here today. Um, and uh, various revelations have been made this week, including um, the former Yarra um, Yatala Labour prison manager. He declined an apology to the family 
um, in this particular circumstance, even though uh, prison management believed guards involved in the restraint of him ran interference to obstruct an investigation into the events. Um, it, like some of the uh, revelations that have come out have shown that it's not just one person who's implicated in the cause of um, Fella's death. Um, lots of people um, in their you know, desire to cover up um, what has happened and this is what leads to deaths in custody. It's an institutional problem where numerous people feel like they can you know, subject people to this kind of abuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And just um, bringing it back to uh, politics in Australia... Um, Christian Porter has actually agreed to discontinue uh, the defamation court case against the ABC, um, but has sought to claim victory despite failing to secure an apology or retraction from the public broadcaster. Uh, This is uh, news coming from The Guardian Australia. Um, So this happened on Monday, where the former Attorney General announced um, he was going to drop the high-stakes case against the ABC, which was launched in March following a Four Corners report that aired allegations a cabinet minister had been accused of raping a woman in the 1980s. When Porter subsequently identified himself as the cabinet minister, referred to he strenuously denied the allegations. Um, after approaching Porter for mediation, the ABC agreed to add an editor's note on its story saying it regretted that some readers had misinterpreted the article as an accusation of guilt against Mr. Porter, uh, but the note also said it did not contend that the serious accusations could be substantiated to the applicable legal standard, criminal or civil. So the defamation case was against uh, ABC reporter Louise Milligan, but uh, has been dropped and there hasn't really been a clear uh, reason as to why. Um, but I guess watch this space. and yeah, mm. I really appreciate um, Louise Milligan and Sally Neighbour uh, from Four Corners both very much standing their ground and Definitely. making it clear that there was like no victory yeah. <laughs> in this particular circumstance. And they also, like, you know, of, there's, like, various terms of the settlement, but it is not a victory in any sort of real way for Christian Porter. Yeah, definitely. And it, it also speaks well to, like, the ABC standing its ground as well, especially for something potentially spurious. Yeah, and mm-hmm. standing by their reporters and their report um, all the way, um was really nice to see. And, yeah, I think uh, Louise Milligan especially um, has handled the situation really well. Um, But, yeah, I know that Porter's lawyer, um, very successful defamation lawyer, uh, had to be dropped from the case due to knowing uh, information or information that she shouldn't have known um, earlier last week. Incredible conflict uh, so, of interest. Just. I, yeah, <laughs> there was a huge conflict of interest. And um, my brother actually mentioned to me last night, uh, he was like, oh, Australia doesn't have that many good defamation lawyers. So, maybe. <laughs> 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 uh, 
couldn't get it better. <laughs> I wanted to bring up some um, overseas sports news, technically sports, but it's more about the person involved. Um, it's uh, This entire affair has just been incredibly shocking to me. Uh, Naomi Osaka, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a yeah. wonderful tennis player, only second um, to the Williams sisters, um, withdrew from the French Open um, amid a row over having to appear at the mandatory press conference. Can I just say how insane it is that you get fined for a pre- for not attending a press conference. Yeah. You just oh want to God. compete. <laughs> yeah. And earlier this week, so Naomi Osaka has basically um, said ahead of time that she didn't wish to attend uh, the press conferences at uh, Roland Garros um, at the French Open um, because she was undergoing some um, mental health issues and just was undergoing a lot of stress and so didn't want to do that. Um, she agreed even to pay the fine, but mm. the backlash has been so much now that she's actually withdrawn from the tournament because she personally feels like she is being a distraction, which is, oh, it shouldn't so affect her in the way that it has. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a massive failing of, um, the media and, you know, sporting communities to address the fact, like, you know, that this is not, a part necessarily that needs to be there of elite sport. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is like the perfect opportunity, I guess, for uh, elite sports to step up and kind of support an athlete um, struggling through mental health stuff. A young woman of colour as well. Yeah. Like it's a big thing for someone like that to come out and, you know, Absolutely. say, I'm really anxious, um, I suffer depression, this mm. is difficult for me and I'm focusing on that. That's mm-hmm. And she's she's so young and, like, you know, there's so many, how many decades of, like, stories of young women in, like, you know, elite sports, especially tennis, how much pressure they oh. go through. And you see, and you see, like, there, there are so many videos out there of, you know, like Venus and Serena Williams being asked awful questions, yeah. mm-hmm. being treated really poorly in, yeah. in um, press conferences, being asked questions that are really inappropriate, um, you know, about their appearance and things like that has nothing to do with tennis. Yeah. Um, so you can see that there is, it, this isn't, I don't think, anything new. Yeah. Um, Got to say, a lot of uh, male journalists not covering themselves in glory mm. uh, and talking about this either. Yeah. yeah. Just like the need for her to feel like she has to apologise yeah. is such a stem from, you know, women, especially women of colour, feeling responsible for things that is just not, their responsibility and feeling like they need to compensate and make room for other people. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. She's the most exciting player anyway. I don't want to watch anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Like, she's literally, like, she's she's incredibly funny as well. Yeah, like, it's just so a funny. shame that she's been put in this situation where she's had to, you know, put her health first and mm. feel like she has to apologise yeah. for it. Yeah, definitely. Um, All right, well, that's the news headlines for this June the 1st. We'll be right back after this. RECR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June, and this year we're asking you to be part of community-powered radio. It's only with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled, and focused on people rather than profits. 
Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2021. 3CR Community Powered Radio. Um, so, uh, uh, up now we're gonna, uh, right now we're gonna listen to, um, a song that I'm really excited to introduce only because, uh, if you were listening earlier and Genevieve asked us what our lockdown plans were, I said that I was hoping to learn a dance and it's actually to this song. It's, um, by extremely popular K-pop band BTS. It's their latest single, Butter, and um, Carnegie and I had been talking about it earlier this week and obsessing over this song and wondering, Ooh. should we? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, like, talking about, like, should we play it um, Tuesday breakfast? And it's like, okay, well, everyone's in lockdown. I think everyone needs a bit of a boost. We of, think you guys deserve this. Exactly, yes. It's going to make your morning. Um, so please enjoy. This is Butter by BTS. Smooth like butter, like a criminal undercover Don't pop like trouble, breaking into your heart like that Cool shake, stutter, yeah, owe it all to my mother Hot like summer, yeah, I'm making you sweat like that Break it down Yeah. 
that was BTS with Butter. We were just discussing how <laughs> in admiration we are of this K-pop group. They're just very talented. So talented. And very, very beautiful. <laughs> and so beautiful, like inside and out, I would say. Everyone yeah. in this studio suddenly turned 16. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Don't get us started. We could, I feel like we could just talk BTS yeah. for the rest of the we show. We can have a BTS-themed show one day. Oh. <laughs> I'd be down for that. I mean, like, the dancing, the singing, the good looks, like, it's just... It's and they're really there. funny. But and anyway, really we'll, we'll, we'll stop. We'll, we'll, we've, got, we've got other things to talk about. Do we? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, next up, I think we're going to play um, some audio from 3CR show In Your Face. Um, and we've got Luke Forster, who will be speaking with James McKenzie about um, his life in the local queer pop culture world and um, calling out racism in Australia. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on a diagnosis of breast cancer or a gynecological cancer? Would you like to support other women as they go through their own cancer experience? Counterpart is a community-based service located in Melbourne. They support women right across Victoria who have been diagnosed with breast or a gynecological cancer. Counterpart peer support volunteers have all had their own cancer experience. They provide a listening ear and emotional and practical support to other women affected by cancer. As a peer support volunteer, you'll receive six weeks training one day a week. The 2021 volunteer intake will begin training in August. Applications close on June 7. To apply or find out more, visit counterpart.org.au forward slash volunteer or call our resource centre on 1300 781 500. Counterpart, women supporting women with cancer. A 3CR supporter.
Oh, queer performer Luke Forrester joins us and activist Lynn Johnson Vestians. Well, Luke Forrester is well known to me, listeners, and I had the pleasure of chatting with him yesterday. And uh, Luke began our interview by talking about what he's been up to lately in the queer pop culture world. Well, that's a that's a very loaded question. <laughs> I think I actually got an email from you a few days ago just saying, let's catch up and have a chat. And I think I felt the walls of my existence crumbling around me because I was starting to think, what have I been doing and, and what is coming up? And I, I honestly think a lot of us in the community, especially anyone involved in the performing arts, has been feeling that way. Uh, I hate to use the phrase post-COVID, um, but as we reintegrate into the world, we are all in a very interesting space where we're... It reminds me of those, you ever see those videos of like calves, uh, like baby giraffes getting born and they're learning how to like walk again and stuff? It, it, it feels a little bit like that, refinding your creative feet, um, figuring out how comfortable you are in re-entering the, the public world as well. And, um, yeah, I think it's, it, it's an important time, especially for queer creatives who, you know, experience a lot of day-to-day pressure and stress just merely by existing to say it's okay to take a little bit of time if you need it. Um, but in terms of what I've been working on, it's it's really good timing as I've just started uh, workshopping and getting back in front of the microphone and hoping to launch a new podcast uh, in the coming months, uh, which is going to be similar to... Uh, the project I was involved in, The Gays Are Revolting, but um, with a bit more absurdity, um, same level of queer content <laughs> and um, some some wonderful creative guests as well and a bit of live music, uh, musical guests as well. So that is all in the, the pipeline for, for me at the moment. But how comfortable are you feeling about re-emerging into the creative world? Oh, gosh, no. Not very at all. <laughs> it's so interesting because uh, I have seen some friends that have just been itching for for this moment to get back out onto stages and to start performing, and they've been, uh, you know, counting down the the days and the hours until they can get back out there. Uh, for for me, it was kind of the opposite in, in that it took a lot of time and quite a lot of uh, uh, critical thinking about myself to go, am, am I ready to go back out there? Um, uh, and uh, you, it's, I don't think it's at all like riding a bike. It's like, I think it's like a muscle, actually. It's something you need to keep doing and, and train for and... Um, really work towards. So it's, it's a scary time. Um, and I'm excited to, you know, uh, make people laugh again, hopefully fingers crossed. <laughs> and, um, but I definitely don't think it's easy for, for everyone. It, it's actually never been easy for me in the first place. So I think that's a part of my, my own struggle. It sounds like you've been a little bit self-critical. You talked about those, you know, critical issues coming up. Yes, yes. And I, I think that's an important trait that I have that doesn't get talked about a lot 
um, in the kind of comedy performing arts world. Um, it tends to, I think the arts tends to attract very outgoing, um, extroverted personalities. And obviously that for obvious reasons, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but I also think there is a large group of really creative people who love making stuff and love doing things like comedy and, and, and public speaking who are actually really self-critical and really introverted and, uh, quite shy. And I, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. It's something I've tried not too hard to push away or get rid of because I think that voice is also important for people to hear. When I was doing the other podcast, I would remind myself all the time of like how many sort of, uh, queer, half Filipino, introverted nerds are there in pop culture. And, and there's very, very few. And, and, I, I didn't want to lose track of that ever. So even though they're, they're not the funnest times to, to go through and be in the middle of, I think it's important to keep true to it as well because that representation can mean a lot to some other little queer kid listening to a podcast and going, Hey, wait a second. That's me. That, that guy's like me and he's, he's doing it. You know, I can do it too. Um, so. It, it, it's it's kind of a double-edged sword, I think. Speaking of double-edged swords, how much Ooh. pressure does the validation that you get from the community kind of, you know, create, especially when you're thinking about embarking on a new project? I love validation. Validation is, like, one of my favourite things. <laughs> it's my main motivating factor. Um, there's There's a lot of pressure within the gay community, and I think there's a lot of pressure on people of color, uh, to be something I've found really difficult to navigate is the pressure placed to, uh, kind of be as a person of color, uh, entertaining as well as informative and all of these really lovely things, you, you know, uh, insightful, but yet funny and passionate and informed and, Every time you step in front of a microphone, you feel the weight of an entire underrepresented community on your shoulders. Uh, and that can really, really wear you down, um, over time. And I think that the trick to it is kind of ties into what I said before is you can only really be yourself. And by representing yourself truly and being who you are, uh, you're contributing. You, you were adding to that visibility. You were being a voice and that, that's like the bare minimum. That's all you need to do, babe. And if you can be all those other things that people expect you to be funny and entertaining and insightful and informative and, and, and impassioned, they're, they're the cherries on top. That's the bonus. But just representing, uh, an underrepresented, um, part of our community is important enough. Um, so that's what I try to remind myself when I feel, feel that pressure. I know sometimes we'd get, we'd usually get an email from our producer with like, here's the topics we're going to delve into this week on the show. 
And sometimes things would stick out to me as one of two people of color on that show to be like, this is clearly a topic for me and Mikey to dive pretty deep into, or I felt some expectation to really find the gold in that topic because it was racially charged or, or, or there was some connection to, to, to race issues in there. Um, uh, and it would stress me out because sometimes you just can't be all of those things at once. You're just, you're just you. Um, but I, I, I'm really, yeah, I, I feel like I'm telling myself over and over again in this <laughs> interview is just being represented and, and being visible and using your voice is enough. And I, I think that goes not just for people of color, but queer people, trans people, uh, uh, any underrepresented, um, minority using your voices is, is enough. The last few months, it's have actually really highlighted how important race representation here in Australia and, and our relationship with our multiculturalism, how important that is to me. Um, uh, it may have been about a month ago we actually rejoined and did a little reunion episode of The Gays Are Revolting and, uh, one of the topics we, we got to delve into was the upcoming cast reveal of, uh, RuPaul's Drag Race Down Under. It was, it actually ended up being announced maybe half an hour after we'd recorded, which is a bit of a pain because we were going off speculation and then suddenly we'd finished and we had all this tea that we <laughs> could have spilt. Um, and I, I remember because there were, some pretty questionable uh, actions by one of the contestants in regards to, to uh, some racially insensitive things that they had done in their history. And I was sitting in the room and I was recording with the boys and I thought, don't do it. Something in my head was like, don't go there. Like, this is a nice reunion episode. Everyone's having a kiki. It's a nice time. People want to tune in, uh, have a laugh catch up with us because it had been a, been a hot minute since we'd recorded. Don't go down the road of this is really bad. Australia has some issues with our race representation and how, uh, and how we respond to culturally and uh, cultural appropriation. And I just kind of bit my tongue and, uh, in terms of the the social world, uh, I walked away from that thinking, no, that was the right decision. You, you know, you can't go in to fight and to bat every single time. Uh, but th- the instances of of racially charged hate crimes and the 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 slow but constant um, increase in uh sort of racially charged asian in in particular asian sort of stereotypes and and um microaggressions just started to creep up ever so slightly and you realize like this is really important to me those 
this shooting that happened in Austin and, and I, I suddenly realized I'm so passionate about this and I had a platform right in front of me uh, with so many listeners and, and an opportunity to talk about something that means a lot to me and I didn't take it. So, uh, that has been gnawing at me, uh, for a little bit. And I, I think now's a really good time for, for us as a community to reflect not upon just the actions of individual people, um, and, and what they may say and do and the microaggressions there, but also the, the structure around them that sort of lets people think that it's okay to do things like blackface for example or a really offensive chinese stereotype or make a joke about covid um being in the chinese flu or something like that and really look down and to say what what is it about our society that supports actions like these and um that has been on my mind i think quite a lot for the last ugh, maybe two months and it's one of those things it's hard to put into words when you're so passionate about it. It, it it's tangled up in all your feelings so i could go on for hours <laughs> about it but it's interesting um, isn't it because i think australian audiences have been you know more more hesitant to criticize it than american audiences and there's been a lot of criticism towards this season from american audiences about blackface and even about Lindy Chamberlain's impersonation. Mm. Mm. It's. I'm so glad we get an opportunity to to talk about it because I I I've, I find the Lindy Chamberlain aspect really interesting as well, and have seen potentially more discourse around that than than the unfortunate blackface and yellowface. I hate that term, but I'm just for shorthand, I'm going to use it here. Incidents and. Uh, and speaking to friends, I think it's because in the U.S. the the conversation's already started, and it that it's been going for a really long time, and and it's it feels so much more of a under the rug taboo topic here in Australia. Uh, I think we have, this is all my opinion, so please don't slide into my DMs or anything like that. Uh, but it feels like sometimes we can have an attitude of, okay, we know that's really bad. And yes, we know about our history and we know that's all bad. So let's just not talk about it. Okay. We get it. And, and we understand, but let's not have the conversation because the conversation, I, I feel like when we do have that conversation, it's going to lead to some pretty uncomfortable outcomes. It's, it's going to really poke holes in some, some fundamental ideas that we have about uh, our Australian identity. Um, and yeah, I, I always wanted to question, we can go on these, uh, tirades about let's make this individual apologize. Let's make Scarlett apologize for the actions that she did and, and uh that is absolutely reasonable and uh, justifiable to ask for uh, the bigger question i have is what about the venues that she was performing at that said this is okay let's book this performer and let them get up and perform in 
in full blackface and the audience that watched that and put it up on social media and took the photos and enjoyed and, and, and uh, sort of enabled that performance to happen. There's a, there's a bigger circle around the individual that, that uh, I feel like we're kind of scared to go down that path. Let's just keep it really contained to the one person doing something really awful. Um, so we don't have to look at the rest of it is kind of how it feels to me. Um, Whereas I think the U.S. is more in a state of saying, "Let's tear this whole thing down." You, you know, it's 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 got to, it's the buck's got to stop here, and and some big changes need to happen. Three. You're listening to Radical Radio Three CR. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons provides sure. a pathway out of this mess, and, also and it's up to us to get our government on board. Tune in to ICANN's Band School to learn more and be part of history in the making. It's five online sessions from June to September. Check it out and enroll at icanw.org.au forward slash band school. That's icanw.org.au forward slash band school. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons is a 3CR supporter. Uh, next up, we have a song which um, is by an artist called Tabachake, who is from a really small town in the state of Arunachal Pradesh in India. Um, but he's now based in Bombay, which is my hometown where I grew up. Um, and this album, Bombay Dreams, is super special to me, reminds me of home. And this song is called Triad. Shayad, mehi hu, shayad, mein nahi Hua kya, na jana Jane ye raaste le jate hai Kahan, patana Yuh hi bas chal pada, mujhko kuch bhi Khawar nahi, khawar nahi मैं हूँ एक मुसाफिर हम सफर भी नहीं भी नहीं इन में भी मैं ही हूँ इन में भी मैं नहीं मुझे ये हुआ क्या कुछ पता Manzil hai hum Gir pade 
going to go to a track now by uh, Disrupt Land Forces. Uh, it's called Jungan Banu Kami Lagi, which is Stop Killing Us.
Stop Killing Us by Disrupt Land Forces. Disrupt Land Forces is actually happening uh, up in Minjin, uh, uh, so-called Brisbane, this week, highlighting the militarization of schools, communities and workplaces. Uh, it's actually disrupting something that's happening at the Brisbane Convention Centre in South Brisbane, uh, Land Forces 2021. Uh, where CEOs and ministers um, alongside the Australian Defence Force representatives plus defence ministers and trade delegations from over 70 nations will all be uh, in the one place at the one time uh, presenting us with uh, presenting, sorry, uh, disrupt land forces with a rare opportunity to speak their truth and power. They're actually running uh, so many great events um, and it's really unfortunate that a lot of Melbourne or sorry, um, um, so-called Melbourne people couldn't make it up there uh, due to the lockdown. Um, so we're looking out for if they're going to be running any online events, but um, it's running right through till Thursday, uh, June 3rd. And if you wanted to check out uh, more information, go to the website. It's disruptlandforces.org slash events or you can check them out on their Facebook page, which is Disrupt Land Forces. Also, keep tuned to 3CR as we'll be updating you uh, throughout the week in terms of the events coming up. And also, there was a great interview that was done on the Radioactive show this morning uh, with one of the key organisers. So definitely go back onto our website and check out that podcast. Wala Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean to bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero waste manufacturing space Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com 
or on Facebook and Instagram. Next up, we're going to have some audio from Greenleft Radio from Friday. Um, Jacob and Zane spoke with Ange Carr from Homelessness Action Geelong. Uh, Homelessness Action Geelong is campaigning to halt the privatisation of public housing in Victoria. You're listening to Greenleft Radio. And on the line, we have Angela um, from Homelessness Action Geelong, which is a kind of new activist group. Um, that has kind of been formed um, within Geelong to campaign around the issues of housing and homelessness. Um, so, um, so good morning, Angela. Hi, Jacob. Um, good morning, everyone. Thanks for having me on the show. And um, so, to guess to start off the discussion, so you're one of the you're part of um, the homelessness action Geelong and sort of being part of forming kind of the group. And I guess, can you start off maybe to set off a bit of um, bit, um, the scene? Can you give us, I guess, a bit of the overview of, I guess, some of your thoughts on the political situation for housing and homelessness, especially in terms of this post kind of COVID-19 period we're sort of in? Absolutely. So I guess as a country, what we've seen really is years of neglect from all the levels of government. And there's really been no willingness to actually acknowledge the growing crisis across the country. We saw in the recent federal budget that the government actually had an opportunity but did absolutely nothing to address housing affordability and the low housing stock across the country. So they did introduce a few middle-class welfare schemes um, in the way of grants for those fortunate enough to be able to break into the property market. But market analysts have actually said that grants and schemes like that, they actually only further push up the cost of housing. Um, They threw in a few family violence initiatives, but the reality is that these initiatives actually don't help the most vulnerable. Um, And they don't address the issue that there's actually no housing for women and children fleeing violence to go to. What we've seen at a state level, so over the last few years, the state government has actually had a rebranding exercise. So they have rebranded the terms public housing and community housing under that umbrella term of social housing. And so last year in um, the budget in October, they did, the Labor government announced, the big build, um, and it sounded really fantastic, $5.3 billion, but the reality is the state of Victoria is years and years, uh, sorry, it's just really behind other states in terms of property stock. And so effectively what they've done, they're actually privatising housing, so... Of that money, I think something like $3.8 billion is going over to the community housing sector, so the private housing sector. Um, and that's only to build 9,300 community housing properties. So that is way behind what is required. We currently have um, over 50,000 people on the VHR in Victoria. Um, and we have lower than ever public housing stock, so we've got less stock now than what we had 20 years ago. And a lot of the public housing stock, it's really dilapidated 
at the end of its life. It's in disrepair. So some money has been allocated for that. I know in Geelong we've been allocated around $180 million, but I'm not sure that that's actually going towards public housing because most of that money is going over to the private housing sector. Hmm. And going into, since you mentioned Geelong, I guess what can you tell us, I guess, about some of the specific issues affecting Geelong in regards to housing and homelessness? I mean, just a bit, uh, a bit of a kind of antidote. I mean, I used to kind of live in Geelong. And what I sort of noticed about the real estate market is it appears to be, um, in terms of the renters market, it appears to kind of be completely crowded and essentially it appears to be almost impossible to get, say, a, a house in like Ocean Grove, which is a suburb kind of I used to live in. So what can you, I guess, tell us about some of those sort of Geelong kind of specific kind of issues? Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. So the cost of housing, it's risen astronomically in the last five years in Geelong. Um, and some of that is probably due to migration from Melbourne. We've had a lot of people leave Melbourne and come down here, especially during COVID. So I think in the last six months I read something like 6,000 people have relocated to Geelong. So there's really low stock availability down here. And in areas like you've mentioned, um, Ocean Grove and those outlying coastal towns, we have a lot of Airbnb. So they've taken um, long-term rental properties off the market. Um, and, I mean, for people that are living on Centrelink payments, there's really not a hope to get into private rental down here now because the cost of properties are so high. And we know that there's no um, affordable one-bedroom property for anyone on Centrelink income in Geelong. Um, and I guess we have to remember the context of Geelong as a town too. So we do have pockets of Geelong that have high unemployment. So we were a working-class factory town. Um, and when places like Ford and Alcoa closed, there's certain communities that never actually recovered from that. Um, and so there's certain pockets of Geelong, especially the north, with high unemployment rates, up around 25%. So a lot of those areas have been neglected by all levels of government, um, and that's just contributed to the poverty and poor housing outcomes for people in the town. And I do know that we have just doubled the national um, average of people that are sleeping rough. So it's at around 15% in Geelong, and it's that really comes down to the low availability of stock. And the majority of the people in our region experiencing homelessness are actually women. So it's about 64%. And the key reason for that is actually um, because of family violence, you know. And now, now that we've sort of gotten some of the, I guess, some of the political context, and I think you've given a very sort of good overview of some of the kind of different issues um, that are kind of affecting kind of housing, what can you tell us, I guess, about um, homelessness action Geelong, and I guess maybe a bit of a kind of story behind its kind of formation? I mean, you have set a bit of a political context, but we kind of want to hear, I guess, a bit more kind of specifics on how this group was formed and um, and ha- um, who is kind of involved. Yeah, sure. So um, I guess it's something that myself and other people in a few circles I travel in have been talking about for a few years. So a few of the people, um, you know, that I know through socialists, 
we've been talking about this, but it was actually really a woman that I knew um, through work. We're both community service workers. Um, and we'd been talking about it for some time, and she's really passionate. Um, and she kind of said, come on, we have to do this. Things are getting so bad in Geelong, um, especially post-COVID. So the stars kind of aligned in that regard. And it's interesting. We've had a lot of... We've had people come forward that we haven't known through our network. And they've also been thinking about starting a group like this um, on their own, but weren't kind of sure how to go about it. So we've all come together and, yeah, it's been a really positive experience so far. Hmm. And um, can you tell us, I guess, about some of the demands and, I guess, um, some of the issues that um, that this group is kind of wanting to take up in, in the course of its kind of campaigning? Yeah, so um, there's a few kind of key asks or demands that we've been talking about, and these are really in no kind of particular order. But one of the things we speak a lot about is adopting a housing first model. So listeners might be aware of Finland's housing first model. Um, so Finland have basically, well, they say they've eradicated um, rough sleeping. They still had some homelessness in the country um, but basically the government all the NGOs charities and things like that they came together in Finland um, to tackle this issue so what they did was they invested in big builds spot purchasing that kind of thing and they did away with um, the model of crisis refuge accommodation transitional which is the kind of model that we have in Australia and, that, and I have to say, that model further traumatises people that are experiencing homelessness, having to constantly move through the system. So what Finland did, when a person presented at, say, their homeless entry point, um, they just provided them with a property, you know, a permanent, stable home, so home first, and then they wrap around, they have a wraparound model of care, so they would support that person depending on what their needs were. You know, it could be mental health services, could be disability support, tenancy assistance, drug and alcohol, family violence, all that. So uh, that was an interview that Jacob and Zane from Green Left Radio had with um, Ange Carr from Homelessness Action Geelong, talking about the need to halt privatisation of public housing and, um, and build instead uh, new public housing for the community. Uh, we're now going to go to a live interview and our next uh, guest I'm sure you will all be very familiar with. Um, we are speaking to the host of Out of the Pan, uh, Sally Goldner. Um, Out of the Pan airs uh, every Sunday on 3CR from 12 to 1pm. And Sally joins us today to discuss the Victoria's Transgender History Report that came out in May this year. The report provides an overview of the legislative, medical and social histories of trans and gender diverse people in Victoria. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Sally. Good to be with you. Um, so could you please tell us a bit about the um, uh, Victoria's Transgender History Project um, and, the, and the report that came out of it uh, only last month? It did. It was released back on Ida Hobbit's Day last month on 17th of May, and it's been in the works for some time um, in that, thanks to, in part to uh, Noah Rissman, professor, well, not 
far down the road from 3CR at Australian Catholic University. Um, and what well, I should say, um, doc, um, doctor, I think, uh, to get titles right, this is as important as pronouns. <laughs> and um, that was a great um, cisgender um, ally to the trans community and that he's put together this awesome report of transgender history, which is inclusive not just of, say, more recent times, say, from the 1970s onwards, but really tries to go all the way back and also be very inclusive and intersectional covering issues of where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities intersect with what we would call trans and gender diverse and transsex workers and many others. So it's a really um, huge report that, um, as I say, covers um, a very long period up until the present. Yes, um, I, I found that particularly interesting. Um, looking, reading about um, the the history of, uh, like you said, um, uh, of um, or the tra- trans and gender diverse history within um, Indigenous uh, populations, not just here in so-called Australia, but overseas as well. And then um, launching into trans history um, of Victoria until World War Two. So it's it's. It's been around for a really long time. There's a lot of uh, documentation of trans and gender diverse people, and I don't think many people would necessarily know about that. Well, absolutely. I mean, um, to be dry-humoured for a second, um, if this, God forbid, was commercial right here, we'd be having people going, oh, this transgender thing, it's a new, <laughs> a new phenomenon, isn't it? Um, that sort of thing. And, of course, you know, there's been all sorts of ways to express um, gender and identify gender since you know the humanity began, and of course on some of the lands making up, as you said, this large island, if I can put it that way, and smaller ones around people, including sister girls and brother boys. Mm-hmm. Digressing a little, there's a great um, interactive map if you just put in PBS, put out by the American Public Broadcasting Service, a much better form of media than commercial. Um, they have a PBS interactive gender map, and you can look at. Um, you know, people of all backgrounds. But coming back on to the report, um, you know, I think that there's a there's an issue in that sometimes people aren't aware of the history um, and sort of that, um, you know, all that's there and also that um, some of the reforms have been by, you know, in the context of time relatively recent, for example, that we didn't have equal opportunity law at a Victorian state level until mm-hmm. 2000. And I think that when people read that, perhaps people begin to understand where our histories come from and why there's been so much difficulty um, forced on to trans and gender diverse people. Um, yes, there's a there's also um, there's a particular section of the report um, that that was particularly interesting called um, "Medicalizing Transgender 1950 yeah. to 2000." Um, could you tell us a bit about that that history um, in in sort of the medical space and and some of the difficulties, but also some of the progress that's been made in this area? Yeah, good <clears throat> good that we you know sort of put both you know sort of both the excuse me <clears throat> both the you know the difficult past, but also that it has progressed. So I do remember. Um, some years ago, hearing the now late Dr. Herbert Bauer saying how he met his first, as to use today's language, trans, trans woman um, in, sadly, a psychiatric ward, which shows you where that things were started in the 1950s and how um, he, even though, of course, there was that huge pathologisation in the DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, 
that um, throughout the early editions um, that um, he knew that this person was not, in inverted commas, mad mm. or you know a problem, that this person really was just telling the truth. And unfortunately, of course, there were difficult things. I feel like saying content warning for port, you know, for difficult things such as electric shock therapy and conversion practices. Um, mm. we'll come back to in a second, all those sorts of things. And then we moved into the 1970s with the more surgical focus. And you know, um, many times there's been reports about how those working in the um, certain part of the um, Queen Victoria Hospital, um, now the QV Centre on Monsdale Street, um, you know, would you know would be almost be partitioned off in a way which was poor. And then things began to progress slowly on the medical front, and there was still a very pathologising approach. And often, sometimes I think a, I often I put I created the term myself medical arrogance throughout the 2000s. Mm-hmm. This we know better than you. But it has shifted over time, and I think that on that front now, you know, Yako Erasmus, who's head of the Monash Adult Clinic, and, of course, Michelle Telfer, who last Monday night featured on Australian Story, um, do, uh, who's head of the Children's Clinic, do amazing work. And we have seen development of informed consent models. Mm. There's gradually just more education for a range of health professionals in the broader community because... Of course, there's no reason to be for a, a, your standard GP to not issue hormones, but it's just been, or say, over-mystified might be one way mm. to put it, and really it's just another pharmaceutical. And then, of course, on the psychological side, there's been a move to having you know more affirming care rather than a very medicalised model, which was also pathologising when I started myself on the Monash program in 1998, and you had to do the 360 question test of things like, um, you know, sort of, did you get, I almost feel like I'm about to cringe, but Mm. did you get trucks or dolls to play with as a Mm. child and all that sort of thing? Mm. Um, And also one other thought that came to mind, which was a few years ago, there was a biopic on Carlotta's life and how she had to go in front of a panel of health professionals and walk in high heels. And I know Mm. this sounds so cringy by today's standards, but the fact that we have move to more affirming models of care. You've got, you know, clinics that are well known in terms of physical health like Northside and Proud Market mm. Clinic and Equinox. You've got great psycho- psychological and mental health services like Drummond Street slash Queer Space. Um, amongst others, we've got the expansion of programs into regional Victoria now, the Gateway Clinic up at Aubrey Wodonga doing great work for young trans people. The fact that there now is this sort of mentoring role by both clinics where they can train people up. Also got to give a mention to Ruth McNair, an awesome cisgender ally to trans people in trans health and now Dr. Cal Andrews. I think that there's been that in, this increased allyship mm. and obviously advocacy by trans and gender diverse people that, um, you know, credit to Jeremy Wiggins for his work when he was at Thorn Harbour getting Equinox set up. I think there's been all that work by trans and allies to see a more equitable, respectful processes and we're just going to keep expanding that. So maybe one day, um, apart from, say, a few specialist things like surgery, we could probably go to any health practitioner in hopefully Victoria and then just get the care we need. Mm. 
it, it it's it's funny that you mentioned just like the cringe worthy uh thing sally uh it, it's sometimes it's easy i think t- for um not to sound too young people these days but it, sometimes i think it's easy f- to for people to forget that a lot of this stuff is very recent history um that it's yeah. not just like something that happened like you know 50 years ago it is within people's lifetimes you thank look it's, uh, it does sound cringeworthy, but I was going to actually say much the same thing from my perspective. A few years ago, I got asked to do a presentation at Headspace with, I'll say, young queer people, but particularly some young trans and gender diverse, and they were almost, you know, gobsmacked, astounded to find out that we didn't have, say, anti-discrimination law until 2000, and it helped them put things into perspective. Oh, maybe that's why older trans women have had a tough a time on another occasion I heard from a trans woman who was running a very informal discussion group and I will say content warning for ageism here that a younger trans woman said to her older trans women don't have a clue well that's obviously not on and Mm -hmm. you know no one ages in my mind is not an automatic license to wisdom at any age but I think um, when we start looking at things like okay no anti-discrimination protection for 20 years uh, until 20 years ago, um, only surgical-based birth certificate reform from around 2004 or five. That um, perhaps you know, when we start explaining that, younger people go, "Gosh, no wonder older trans people have had some challenging times." So I think if a report like this that explains it, cringeworthy as often some of the things are, people go, "Oh, okay, that can help um, foster intergenerational mm-hmm. learning and understanding," which I just think is a really critical thing in all of our rainbow communities. It it also gave me a lot of perspective about the history of all the organisations that have come together Mm. and, you know, um, you know, the way in which those organisations have progressed as well because, uh, you know, the the fight is everyone's fight. Mm. Yeah, well, look, you've you've, you've actually, you know, made, made me think of something that I just hadn't thought of. I mean, in the 90s, there was a time some friction between some of the organisations that existed, um, say Seahorse and Chameleons were too, and they had their moments and TLC, and it wasn't all bad, but there was that sense of friction. And we, you know, now I do, and then around 2013, and credits again to Drummond Street Services, who helped facilitate a forum with representatives of, of many of the trans groups at the time, and now, no, we don't 100% agree on everything, and nor should we, because cisgender people don't have to either. <laughs> but I do feel there's a sense of civility and cooperation growing in Victoria and slowly, obviously, over time as well around Australia. And that means we can get more things done together and, you know, sort of put all our energies into just doing what we need to be doing, which is, you know, sort of achieving equality and respect and ending cisgenderism and transphobia and being valued. So that thought had only just struck me as we were talking. (laughs) I I do feel like it is the responsibility of all um, queer organisations to step up in that circumstance and um, help um, where it's needed because, like like, like we were saying before, like it's everyone's fight and any sort of harm to one part of the rainbow is harm to everyone. Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, as much as I hate a military analogy, I mean, I, I hate them, and to use a term like lines of defence, but 
you know, if the trans community goes backwards, then those who would oppose us all say, ah, we can have a go at, say, bi people, let's just bi people and then gays and lesbians. So mm. the stronger we all are, the, the better off we all are. And um, you know, I think that that the thing that I've also seen, I think there has been, well, the fact that this report was put out by, you know, it's this gender ally. I see the thing that's made a difference in the last few years, particularly when it was a tough, you know, it was tough. Um, you know, I remember in 2010 was um, when there were reforms to the Victorian Equal Opportunity Act. There was, for the first time, it was like people were coming to us asking, what do you want mm. um, included from a trans perspective? It's like, oh, wow, people are coming and asking us rather than us having to bash the door down. And that allyship has been us through some of the tougher times over the last few years, attack on safe schools, um, others. And, you know, I know it's still not perfect out there and we have, well, I hate to mention some commercial media again, but also there is that shift that some commercial media are now doing really allied, good ally reports that are fair and balanced and shutting down some of the nastier issues. So I think that it has progressed and we're just, it's like anything, just got to keep putting in the effort and keep the momentum going. Yeah, I'm I'm just looking at um just the TGV website and and looking at the sources from the report um and it lists, you know, different uh different oral history interviews with um with trans and gender diverse Victorians, um activists, health practitioners, newspaper reports and and also personal archives. I mean, this is a massive project like you were saying, Sally. Um and there's something there must be something quite special about having it all um in one report, um, I think, you know, g- going, um, moving away from uh, or incorporating oral history interviews and being able to read um, and have it on paper um, all, you know, the history of, of trans and gender um, diverse uh, people in this state would be something quite, um, yeah, amazing and, and um, uh, quite revolutionary um, in, in sort of helping or in... in Campaigning for for rights and and more progress for for um, TGD Victorians. Well, it is. I have to say, just having a, a quick reread before we came on the air, um, it's like, oh wow, all that's happened, and now looking at the list of oral history interviews, um, you know, sort of Julie Peters, the absolute pioneer, um, and Anna Langley, who were prominent in the nineties, um, and also good to see, you know, Sin. Victor Kennedy, who, who was one of the first more prominent younger trans people and a, an early convener of Y gender, I think that's something of which we can be proud, that we have begun to build up this sort of intergenerational history. And just even doing this interview has reminded me, I probably forgot to forward this to um, international lists as well. And I think that, um, you know, there's plenty, there's, you know, learning in there. And also having history documented, it means sometimes we don't have to reinvent a wheel. Mm. What, what did we do when we had to deal with something like this in the past? Well, we can go back and have another look and might get some ideas. So yeah, I think there's, it's a very rich report. And just looking at the names of the oral interviews alone, yes, plenty of you know people who I would call dear friends and community colleagues, but um, you know, sort of plenty of others who you know I perhaps I've never met. Mm. And you know that just it is really wonderful and giving a sense of of connection to, um, to each other. And um, I think that, yeah, it's just very enjoyable to read it. And 
I think, yes, at times it's challenging, but it also, I think that talks about to the resilience of trans and gender diverse people and um, that we can build a base and keep moving forward. Definitely. Um, well, uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Sally. We'll pop a link to um, the report um, in our show notes. And just very quickly, there is a, a really great timeline um, that shows, um, that compares, you know, Victorian history, Australian history, and also global history of trans and gender diverse people. So um, please check that out. But thank you again, Sally. And um, uh, yeah, uh, tune in on um, Sundays for, for Out of the Pan. Yeah, and just a quick mention of the link that you can go to um, tgv.org.au, Transgender Victoria's website under projects um, on the top is where it comes up. And um, yeah, it's um, it's just it's yeah, it is really awesome. And thank you, of course, for the time. And um, well, Tracy has been a part of that history for the trans community. I'm declaring all my possible interests. It's a great <laughs> source of pleasure for me as well. Yeah, thank you, Sally. Pleasure. All right, that comes to the end mm. of our show. Um, just to recap what was on the show today, um, we had just at the start, um, we played some audio from In Your Face. Luke Forrester spoke to James McKenzie about his life in the local queer pop culture world and his new podcast. Then we had uh, some audio from the Green Left Radio about homelessness action in Geelong, and we just heard from 3CR's own Sally Goldner. Um, well, I hope everyone stays safe. Mm. Remember the COVID restrictions, five kilometre radius, masks, um, and you can only leave your house for exercise and shopping. Um, but otherwise, yeah, stay safe. Hope everyone gets into their lockdown vibe and keep it locked to 3CR. Uh, coming up next, as always, is Accent of Women. Uh, and I hope everyone has a great week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR.